grab a copy of God's Word and let's go to, to John 16. I'm going to start reading in verse 16 today. This text really couldn't have come at a more fitting time for us. You know, one of the things we celebrate in the Christmas season is the joy that comes to the world because of the birth of Jesus Christ. Of course, when we say that, when we sing that, as we did earlier, we don't mean that uh, the world all at once becomes a joyful place. We still experience grief and sorrow. What we mean is that joy is ultimately bound up with the person of Jesus and the joyful end to which He is bringing the world. Uh, We get into some of that today as Jesus speaks to the disciples, uh, sorrow turning into joy. Uh, This text uh, personally couldn't have come at a more fitting time for me. Uh, The Lord has seen I encounter just a handful of of circumstances this week that have brought me great sorrow over sin and and the consequences that sin has in people's lives. And I imagine there are many things that cause you sorrow as well, whether that's an issue you've been wrestling with deep inside of yourself or between you and your family members or even in the world at large, you wonder whether you even have permission to sing this morning, Joy to the World. And my hope is that the words we read today will actually strengthen your confidence that you do have permission to sing Joy to the World if you are in Christ. Let's start reading in verse 16. Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, that, uh, what, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. You know, as we come to our passage today, we, we find the disciples in a state of confusion once again. And this time it's over Jesus' words a little while longer. You know, as if his departure wasn't already confusing enough for them. Now, now his departure seems like it's not as simple as, as Jesus just sort of being translated to, to heaven. 
the pathway seems a bit more broken up. A little while you will see me, no longer. Again a little while and then you will see me. This is at least the fifth time they've heard Jesus say something in regard to a little while. But his words are still throwing the disciples off. What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. Something Jesus has also mentioned earlier to them. So we've got these three details. The disciples are, uh, they don't understand. A little while and you will not see me. That's one. Again, a little while and you will see me. That's two. And because I'm going to the Father. That's three. Now, as readers who, who stand on, on this side of the cross and the resurrection, uh, we get what Jesus is saying. Just by reading elsewhere in John's Gospel, we, we can piece together the picture in ways the disciples didn't yet have access to. And what Jesus has in mind in terms of his departure are, are the three massive events that stand at the heart of the Gospel, the good news. His death, his resurrection, and his ascension. A little while and you will see me. And, I mean, and you will not see me. That, that's referring to Jesus' death. The disciples are only hours away from, being, from Jesus being arrested, uh, tried, and crucified. And once he's crucified and then buried, they're not going to see him. Again a little while, and you will see me. Well, that's his resurrection. He won't stay in the tomb forever, in other words but only a little while, and the disciples will then see him again. And what about this because I'm going to the Father business? Well, 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 that's again talking about his ascension, back his return back to the Father in glory. So he's essentially saying, listen, you know, I'm going to the Father, but the way I'm going to the Father is via the cross and resurrection. In some ways, Jesus is, is tying these events together. They stand as a unified whole in his work to save us. And according to Jesus, they secure great joy for us. Or better, Jesus secures great joy for us through them. This comes across in a couple of, of interrelated ways that I want us to, to look at today. First of all, we see that Jesus' death and resurrection secure our joy. His death and resurrection secure our joy. Let's walk through uh, verses 20 to 22. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Now, any run through John's gospel makes it abundantly clear the world hates Jesus a lot. Right? The world doesn't like Jesus exposing its darkness. He is the light of the world. The world doesn't like His light exposing its darkness. It doesn't like Jesus' words exposing its evil. It doesn't like Jesus' righteousness exposing its slavery to sin. And by the end of John's Gospel, the world's hatred leads them to kill Jesus. They, they crucify Him. Jesus is saying the world is going to rejoice when they do. Because they'll think they have finally shut this man up. By killing him. But Jesus reassures the disciples that's not the end of the story. He goes on to say, You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, he doesn't say your sorrow will be replaced by joy. 
He says your sorrow will turn into joy. As, as if to say, the sorrows of the cross itself somehow turn into a cause for, re, for rejoicing. How could that be? How could the sorrows of a cross become cause for joy? Verses 21 and 22 tell us, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. He's saying the joy of a baby doesn't come apart from the anguish of labor. And nearly any mother in here can testify to that. The joy of receiving a child is bound up with entering and going through the labor. The same is true of Jesus' cross. See Brent over there smiling. Stephanie is about a week and a half away. So you'll get this better, you know, two weeks from now. So we got this. The joy of receiving a child is bound up with entering and going through labor. The same is true of Jesus' cross. He must enter the sorrows of a cross. Sorrows the disciples themselves will in some measure experience, but the sorrows will eventually become cause for great celebration, cause for great joy. And that cause for joy becomes all the more clear when we consider that it's really normal for Jesus to use illustrations that have roots in the Old Testament. And I'd submit to you that he's picking up a fairly common Old Testament image here, a woman in labor, and actually using it to make a really important point. You see several places where this image occurs in the Old Testament set forth promises. They they set forth trajectories for God to bring massive deliverance and abundant joy for His people and the whole world. Isaiah 26 portrays Israel as a woman writhing and crying out in childbirth, hoping for some kind of deliverance, but all Israel can give birth to is wind. Israel can't produce any deliverance on her own. And the further proof of her helplessness is that death remains a problem. Death still plagues the nation of Israel. And death still plagues the whole world because of sin. We die because we are sinners. But then the Lord promises the woman in labor that the dead will one day be revived with shouts of joy. Even though Israel can produce no salvation on her own, the Lord will eventually do so Himself. And so Isaiah then picks up the same image of a woman in labor later on, but this time it's to point out the abundance of God's deliverance. A servant will be born to Israel. And he would deal with sin. He would remove the sting of death. He would extend God's rule to the ends of the earth. And as a result, all the nations would be sent into rejoicing. I think Jesus walks His disciples into similar imagery here. Only now the promises and the trajectories of the Old Testament are materializing. All the promises of deliverance and joy, the forgiveness of sins... 
the rejoicing and the ingathering of the nations are finding their completion in Jesus. But he had to enter the sorrow of the cross first before he could bring the joy of eternal life to his disciples and to the world. It's as he said before, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Same here, deliverance and joy will will only come by entering the sorrows of a cross. And this is where Jesus brings the disciples back into the picture. So also you have sorrow now. Meaning you feel sorrow now and you're going to keep feeling sorrow when the cross takes me away from you. Your sorrow will be like a woman travailing in labor. But you need to know that none of it will be in vain. Because, he says, get this, I will see you again. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Meaning at his resurrection three days later. I will see you again, he says, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Exactly what we find happening when we turn just a few more pages in chapter 20, verse 20. Jesus comes, he's in his resurrection body, he appears to them and it says there, the disciples were glad to see him. They were glad. And from the way things play out in the book of Acts, That gladness for the disciples and the church never goes away, even in the face of affliction. Now, why will they be so glad? Why will the disciples' hearts rejoice? Why should our hearts rejoice with theirs? Well, our hearts should rejoice because of what the resurrection means for everything Jesus has done through the cross and for everything Jesus sets in motion for the kingdom of God. Our hearts should rejoice because of what the resurrection means for everything Jesus has done through the cross and for everything Jesus sets in motion for the kingdom of God. If Jesus had stayed in the grave, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that we would still be in our sins. Death can only hold sinners in the grave. Death is God's judicial sentence on sinners. But if Jesus has entered into death through his cross, by going through the sorrows of the cross, if he has entered into death and then risen again from the dead... The resurrection is making a statement about Jesus and who he is. He must have died for sins that were not his own. The resurrection says Jesus is righteous. He died for our sins. These types of things will start clicking for the disciples once Jesus rises from the dead. As you can recall, there's there's several places in John's Gospel where where we get hints towards this, that that they don't actually understand things. But when Jesus rose from the dead, then they got it. Then they applied the Scripture. Then they did this. Piece by piece, all that Jesus did and taught them will start making sense. 
His resurrection vindicates Jesus' life as righteous. It tells us the cross achieved the forgiveness of God's people. This is how the sorrows of a cross become cause for rejoicing in light of the resurrection. The sorrows of Jesus' cross would remain mere sorrows with no purpose and no redeeming power had Jesus stayed in the grave. But with Jesus standing before the disciples alive, the sorrows of His cross turn into the joys of deliverance because the cross, they see that in the resurrection, the cross did what it was supposed to do. This is why John can then write a gospel like this one after Jesus' resurrection and say things like, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I know He takes away the sin of the world because He walked out of the grave. And that means His cross was effective. If the Son sets you free from slavery to sin, you will be free indeed. How do I know he's gonna, He sets these people free? His cross actually sets people free from slavery to sin because He walked out of the grave and it confirms what His death accomplished. Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. How can John be so sure that Jesus is going to gather all the nations? Because He's not dead. He's alive. So he writes this gospel to declare things about what the cross achieved because Jesus appeared to him victorious over sin and death as well as the other disciples. And this then becomes cause for our rejoicing when we read his testimony. You know, one, uh, for example, one thing to note is that weeping in John's gospel is often associated with death. People are weeping over Lazarus' death. The disciples here are going to weep and lament over Jesus' death. Mary is found weeping at the tomb because death has taken away her master. And folks, many of us too weep over death, whether it's of a, lo- of, of a loved one or death that's plastered all over the news and all sorts of events. We weep because death keeps telling us there's a problem. Sin. What John is telling us, what Jesus is telling the disciples, is that he is the only only answer to our weeping over death. Because he is the only one who can deal with the problem of sin. He died to forgive sins that would have otherwise held us captive to the grave and sent us to hell. He entered the sorrows of a cross under the wrath of God to absorb God's wrath against our sin that we might find forgiveness. And then He rose to snap death's power over His people. That's you and me if we believe in His name. If you do not believe in His name, these words are not for you. They're not written for you. They're written for the disciples. If you believe, though, you will have the forgiveness of sins And the power of death snapped over your life. Jesus' resurrection also sets in motion the final days of God's deliverance, God's kingdom. So His resurrection not only looks back and confirms what the cross has achieved, His resurrection also 
ushers in what you might call an overlap of the ages. The final kingdom of God breaking into this present kingdom. All the travails behind Old Testament hopes were now giving birth to redemption. Hopes of a new creation were now coming to fruition. Jesus would stand before the disciples as the first of many more to receive their resurrection bodies. Longings for the plague of death to be snapped were now answered as Jesus, the resurrection and the life, stood before His disciples never to die again. Promises of God visiting the earth like a shepherd to gather the nations were now coming to fruition. Just like He said, the good shepherd laid down His life for the sheep and then He took it up again so that He might gather all His Father's sheep from among the nations. See, these are the sorts of things that are set in motion when Jesus rises from the dead and they are cause for great rejoicing. It's the very things... Jesus is trying to get the disciples to see that they, when He rises from the dead, they will rejoice in the very things Abraham rejoiced to see in Jesus' day. He saw them coming and was glad, chapter 8 tells us. Now they were fixing to arrive. It's the final days that John the Baptist was thrilled to see when he heard Jesus, the bridegroom's voice, coming to win his bride. It's what Jesus himself was trying to get the disciples all excited about in chapter 4 when he showed them how people from all nations were beginning to come to him. It's a day, he says, for sower and reaper to rejoice together in the harvest of souls. This is why the disciples would rejoice. Jesus resurrected would mean the cross is powerful to save and God's final kingdom was on its way in. This is why nothing and no one would be able to take away their joy. The resurrection would open their eyes to glory after glory of God's final redemption. It would also open their eyes to the folly of the world. The world rejoiced at Jesus' death, did it not? They rejoiced that they had shut him up. But the world that rejoiced at Jesus' death would be proven futile and stupid at Jesus' resurrection. While the world was proudly rejoicing, God was powerfully redeeming. And the resurrection stands as a testimony against all the foolish pursuits of the world. No one, no human, no demon in the world would be able to rob the disciples of joy because the risen Christ would stand victorious for them. Victorious over every joy-robbing power, whether it's sin, death, or the devil and his cohorts. Jesus' victory wouldn't be like many of the fleeting victories that we experience in this world. You know, favorite team wins, then it loses. Jesus always wins. He's not just undefeated, He's undefeatable. And so there's never a reason for our joy as believers to give way. It's rooted in the always victorious Christ. A victory we see very clearly in the cross and the resurrection.
Let's pause there for a minute. If this joy has been secured for us through Christ, we've got to ask ourselves, why are so many counterfeit joys from the world so attractive to us? Or, or why, from, from time to time, do we seek to, to try to, to, to fabricate our own joys when God gives us these things in Christ so freely? It's true that we experience hardships in this world. When we know that we are created for joy, we experience hardships, we know we're created for joy. The big problem is that we're tempted to chase down joy in things outside of Christ. Folks, our passage is very clear. The world cannot produce true and lasting joy. Verse 20 shows that very plainly. They rejoice at Jesus' death, but His resurrection proves it's just superficial. It's hollow. Our joy will be just as hollow if it's not grounded in the person and work of Christ. His cross and His resurrection are cause for rejoicing. And one of our biggest temptations is to start thinking that we can either find joy elsewhere or fabricate something of our own that will move our souls. But joy that has no root in Christ will be short-lived. And this is even true for our community together as a church. If our joy is ultimately rooted in the latest fads and best diets and newest books and clever gadgets, if, if, our, fellowships, if our fellowship together hands each other man-made philosophies on, on how to be happy, on what to do to increase joy instead of, uh, with, with worldly means, instead of giving each other Christ and all that He is for us, then we will never know true and lasting joy as a community. So pursue the glories of the cross and resurrection together. Make them your meditation day in and day out. Preach them to one another again and again. Never content yourself with with just reporting what's going on. Declare what what the death and resurrection of Jesus means for your soul and for your eternal happiness in God. Jesus appeared to the disciples for your joy too so that your joy may never be taken away too. In fact, later on when John's writing his letter, 1 John, you remember that he's writing these things because he has fellowship with the Father and the Son. And he says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. For our joy, the church's joy, to be complete. Moreover, if this... Joy flows out of the cross and resurrection to us so freely. Then far be it from us to become okay with pessimism. Always stressing the gloomiest possible view about everything. Churches shouldn't be full of curmudgeons and killjoys. But people who have had a personal encounter 
with the crucified and risen Christ whose work has sent them soaring into song. If anybody should be pessimists, it's the world. We have Christ. They have nothing. Part of our witness to the world is joy, in fact. Paul says in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter... We are the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Pessimism is not welcome in the church because pessimism fails to acknowledge what Jesus' cross and resurrection mean for the future and for today. Uh, One pastor put it this way. The sin of pessimism is the sin of ignorance. And he means the, the ignorance of the gospel. The man who is well read and well informed as to the ways of providence and grace is never troubled with pessimistic views. They never enter his mind or darken his soul, never becloud his thought or disturb his peace. Luther once said, I cannot hinder the birds from flying over my head, but I can keep them from building a nest in my hair. This is true of us all. We cannot hinder the existence of pessimism. It is here, but we can keep it out of our lives. Knowledge will do it. And he means knowledge of the gospel. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed to Him. There is no room, either in the mind or heart of Him who is filled with such deep and positive convictions as these, for any pessimistic views. They are of necessity driven out even as the darkness of night is driven out when the shutters are thrown open and the morning light fills the heart and home. This is what every soul needs. It needs more light, light of a higher order, even that which comes from a deep personal acquaintance with Christ, the light of the world. Give the soul an abundance of this light And pessimism, that foul vulture that feeds upon darkness and despair, will take to itself wings and fly away like bats and owls before the rising sun. I'm not saying that we then resort to some sort of naive optimism. We are taught to be sober-minded about all things. I'm also not saying that we will never know sorrow in this age. We very much will. Jesus will tell us in... Verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation. But the deep-seated joy we find in the cross and resurrection puts our temporary sorrows in perspective of Jesus' victory and the age to come. We take our cancer to places like 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light Momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul can only say that in light of the cross and resurrection. We take our sorrow over injustice. 
to 1 Corinthians 15, where we see God putting right now all of Christ's enemies under His feet. The last one to be put there is death. And then He will turn the kingdom over to His God and Father and God will be all in all. We take our trials to a passage like Romans 8 and we see how all of those trials conform us to Christ's image and will eventually cease in a new creation all the while Christ's love is holding on to us amidst them. We take our discouragement to the cross and the resurrection, and we let God have the final word over us. I was discouraged even this week preparing this sermon, right, on joy. I'm just totally discouraged, not knowing what's going to happen. And I just start committing these things to the Lord in prayer. And he, and he just brings to my mind the forgiveness of my sins. That was enough to send me soaring once again in song. Plugged in the little iPad, just singing some hymns in the office for a little while before continuing in the sermon. That was enough. Knowing the forgiveness of my sins and my fellowship with God was enough to snap my discouragement. When we take our sorrows to the cross and resurrection, God teaches us how to view them, much like He's teaching the disciples how to view their sorrow here. Even when it's through tears, God will show us joy and how joy is possible even amidst sorrow. It's a joy that never changes because it's a joy that's not rooted in this world. It's a joy that's rooted in God who never changes. And He has brought us into this joy through the cross and resurrection. So let us hold fast to Him always. And that's actually the second thing I want to look at briefly. Holding fast to Christ's joy in prayer. Jesus' exaltation also ensures our ongoing access to joy. So the cross and the resurrection... Secure it. His exaltation at the right hand of God ensures our ongoing access to this joy that He's secured for us. And it's not just any joy. If you remember in chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus speaks of His joy being in us and our joy being full. Fullness of joy only comes when you're united to Jesus. And here we see that as Jesus is, is exalted, as He returns to glory with His Father, we come before God in prayer so that our joy then may, may then be full. This is verse, verses 23 to 24. Jesus says, In that day... So this is part of why I said earlier that His cross and resurrection send in motion the things, uh, the, the final kingdom that's coming in. In that day, he's talking about the day that's between his return to glory and his second coming. In that day, it's where you and I live, you will ask nothing of me, as they've been doing in, in person. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you Until now you have asked nothing in my name. 
Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, all kinds of things can be said about asking in Jesus' name. And and we even walked through some of uh, the abuses of this when we were in chapter 14. It's not a magical formula that, that we say to get whatever we want. It's not an empty mechanical expression we tag on at the end of our prayers. What we concluded was this, asking in Jesus' name means imploring the exalted Christ to give us all that we need to glorify God. Asking in Jesus' name means imploring the exalted Christ with adoration, because He rules over all, with confidence, because He is able to provide for us. We ask with humility, because we don't deserve to be coming here asking And we also ask with the Spirit's help, because Jesus sent him to teach us how to pray. So we we ask, we, we implore the exalted Christ to give us all that we need to glorify God. That's what our definition was of what it means to to ask in Jesus' name. Well, all of that was built on the way that in chapter 14 Jesus links asking in His name, to His exaltation to the Father. Jesus is is continuing the same line of thought here. It's just that now He adds the part about joy. And how our joy is actually served through our praying. So we pray to the exalted Christ. God gives us what we need to glorify Him. And when He does... The result is joy. Ask, he says, and you will receive. And what's the goal? So that your joy may be full. Meaning Christ's exaltation isn't merely to help you do things for Him. But to help you enjoy Him in all that He provides for your doing. Joy in Jesus' presence is the goal of our prayers, not mere supplies for the mission. He commands us to ask the Father to lean on God in prayer because He knows where true joy is to be found. It's to be found in His presence, doing His will. It's as David says in Psalm 1611, In your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We ask, we implore, we cry out, and God supplies all that we need in order to make our joy full. Have you ever thought, when you you come to the Lord in prayer, have you ever thought that Jesus sits at God's right hand for your joy? He not only died for your joy and rose from the dead for your joy, He now sits in heaven for your joy. That right now He reigns in heaven to give you every confidence to sing the songs that we sang earlier. Joy to the world. Joyful, joyful, we adore you. 
And as long as Jesus sits there in heaven, which is forever, we have access to fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. The question is, why then does prayer so often take a back seat in our lives? Why is prayer so often the last thing we squeeze into our meetings? Why is it so low on our list of priorities? Why can we sit for three hours in front of the television or a movie or a football game and can't hardly sit for three minutes with heaven's joy? It's because we don't know God and we don't know the world and we forget where true and lasting joy flourishes. God is the fountainhead of joy. Jesus gives us access to the fountain. Prayer is how we come and drink. Joy flourishes with God and His provision for our lives in Christ. And prayer is our means of laying hold of it. Prayer is the soul's pursuit of joy in God through Christ. And the one who prays little can expect to know little of true joy. So I'd actually like us to spend some time doing that right now. Pursuing our joy in God through prayer. I know the holidays are crazy. And it's likely that some of you will forget some of these things over lunch while you're trying to line out your week. But I want this to sink into your souls a bit more. And what better way for us than to take time right now to ask God to make our joy full. So I'd encourage you to pray together. You'll get together in three or four people and pray in concentric circles. Pray for yourself that you would know joy, that God would come and and arrest your heart and make you to know His joy in Christ. And then I want you to pray for joy for your family. And then out to this church, that our church would throw away anything that's hindering joy in Christ. That God would deliver us from any idols, that, that we might find our total satisfaction in Him. And then... And then I want you to pray for God to use you to take this same joy to the world. Many of you will be around family members and friends this Christmas that know nothing of this joy. So ask God to use you in bringing them the joy of Christ's cross, resurrection, and ascension. If you're not a Christian, you don't have to participate. But I'd sure love for you to find uh, someone uh, from Redeemer to talk with during this time. And if you're a member, please spend time talking with our non-Christian guests about questions they may have about Christ. And then point them to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So we'll go for a little bit here and then I'll come close us in prayer. So why don't we...